0: Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast for today, Friday, February 18th, 2022. John Podhoritz is out this morning, but with us, as always, is senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, Noah. Executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, Noah. And joining us in John's absence is tech commentary columnist James B. Meggs. Hi, Jim. Great to be back. Uh, I am Noah Rothman, associate editor, and I have to apologize to the audience right up front because I am struggling with a terrible head cold. I've been dealing with it all week. Um, And if you haven't noticed as a daily listener, it's only uh, a testament to my consummate skills as a broadcaster and the good sense I had to keep very quiet throughout the entire week. This is not a luxury I have today, so you will have to struggle along with me. But we'll begin today with an update from the front. Um, more news on the on the Russia Ukraine tensions, which are perhaps coming to a head this weekend. The United States announced today that we believe roughly 169 to 190 thousand uh, Russian service personnel are amassed along the border of Ukraine in Belarus in Russia proper and in the occupied territories of Crimea and the Donbass region. A significant increase from the estimate that Joe Biden presented us with uh, as recently as Tuesday, which was roughly 150,000 Russian troops. And the American estimate as of January 30th was approximately 100,000. So the buildup hasn't slowed, it's uh, accelerated dramatically. The American response has been to introduce more U.S. troops into Poland, including 250 M1A2 uh, tanks. Um, And on the Donetsk side of the equation, that's uh, the Donetsk and Luhansk people's republics, uh, self-declared people's republics in the occupied Donbass region, um, are ratcheting up the tensions significantly. Today, uh, the representative of the Donetsk Republic said they are evacuating women, children, and elderly from the territory. Uh, Putin held a press conference with his cat's paw, uh, uh, Lukashenko, the president of Belarus, Today, saying so telling Russians to brace for incoming sanctions. Uh, no good news. And yet, and yet, um, the Belarus exercises are scheduled to end this weekend. Um, Sergey Lavrov, who's the foreign minister of Russia, uh, said that he responded positively to an overture from Secretary of State Tony Blinken over the uh, week saying they will schedule a, a bilateral meeting for next week to discuss tensions in the region. Um, And we are regularly confronted in media reports with uh, the calm and composure of average Ukrainians, none of whom appear to think that invasion is imminent. And this is presented to us as a contrast, uh, profound contrast to Western alarm in a way that complements the Russian narrative of the crisis, which is that there is no crisis. Nothing's about to happen. Um, This is all muscle. This is all performance. And it's extremely unhelpful to hear, this is the Kiev narrative, it's extremely unhelpful to hear from Western capitals and Western observers that an imminent invasion is likely, um, and for a lot of practical reasons that I've talked about before, but also for political reasons, the practical reasons uh, in my view uh, are that uh, Kiev hates this sort of talk because it reduces the incentives to engage in domestic and foreign economic activity, it reduces the incentives to invest in Ukraine, it also puts a damper on uh, shipments of arms, defensive weaponry into Ukraine, because why would you continue to introduce Western weaponry into Ukraine if it's a lost cause? Uh, that's, to me, the rationale uh, for the Kiev side for saying, stop talking about war. The rationale on the Western side for talking about world war also makes imminent sense to me. Um, if you're concerned about geopolitical interests vis-a-vis the United States or Russia, maybe not so much Vis a vis Ukraine and the United States. That rationale would be to give Russia no space, say, war is coming, war is coming, war is coming. This is why we're pulling our diplomats out. This is why they're building up. The rationale for that, as I see it, is to provide Moscow with absolutely no space to claim some provocation prompted invasion. Invasion has been coming for two weeks now, according to the United States. It's been imminent. So that whenever a provocation occurs, whatever form that takes, um, only the most committed of, of useful idiots and blinkered ideologues who uh, adopt the Russian narrative reflexively will believe it. And this will be valuable in the near term when uh, European quislings uh, who want to accept the new status quo on the ground and motivate themselves into believing that they can accept the status quo on the ground in exchange for energy and peace, um, that, that's gonna happen sooner rather than later. Memories are short. And Western Europeans who might not necessarily want to follow through with a very aggressive sanctions regime against Russia will find some reason to justify that course of action. And they may, ne- may need to be shamed into it. Nevertheless, causing a lot of frustration on the part of our, our counterparts in Kiev. Um, does anybody yeah. anybody th- think, yeah, con- continue. It. Do you think this is a, re- a smart? Well, I just want to say I think.
1: Well, I, I just want to say I think there's a there's an additional rationale. There's a political rationale for Biden um, in um, talking about the the possibility, uh, the likelihood of a Russian invasion, in the way he has, which is that he, it's sort of the anti-Afghanistan approach. Uh, even though I mean Afghanistan was his own doing uh, to a much greater extent than than what we're looking at here. But there's Afghanistan was happy talk. This isn't going to be like Saigon. Kabul's going to hold. We're going to get everyone out. This is run for your lives. I'm not painting a happy picture. This is bad. It's going to get worse. Everyone get out. I'm telling you up front. And I, I think there's a, a at least some of that involved in uh, the messaging coming out. But of that US. also
2: plays into Putin's uh, long-term strategy, doesn't it? Because he did this. He did this before, right? He is What was it? It's either 2007 or 2008 when they when they went into Georgia. He said he's like, oh, we're pulling troops out. You guys are, you know, and and they did. They pulled a few troops out, and then they went in and invaded. So I mean, this idea that I mean, he's a former KGB guy. The idea that he's going to handle this the way a normal diplomatic through diplomatic means and what he says means what he says has never been the case with him. And it's always absolutely befuddled uh, American leaders and and Biden isn't the first one to deal with this. That's why there's this insistence to the American people like, I looked into his eyes. I know he's bad. Or "Uh, don't worry. He trusts me. We're the same. Like Every president has tried to crack that nut, but he's a nut, like he's going to say one thing and do another. And that's how his entire career has been built on deception. It's deception. So I think, in some ways, Biden's going to get himself into another kerfuffle by saying, you know, by talking about it that way. I mean, they-
0: James, do we uh, can we rely on our European allies in the in the West? Are they are they are they competent, reliable, stalwart stewards of the seventy year peace on the competent on the continent?
3: I think the way you asked the question kind of frames the answer. Uh, oh, unfortunately, sorry. <laughs> it wasn't <in> a neutral, <laughs> a neutral wording there. Right, I think they've shown a, a little likelihood to, to see their. Um, to see their goals as being in any way unified, it's increasingly become kind of an every man for himself, and it's very much compounded by the energy situation. I'm just finishing up a piece right now about about that touches on the state of energy politics in Europe, and it's disastrous. The, uh, Germany just last month shut down three of their last six nuclear reactors. Uh, by the end of the year, they will have taken 12% of their electric power off the grid for no reason other to, than to appease the Green Party. And uh, while they you know, go on this, this sort of uh, hopeless effort to power their economy entirely with wind and solar in a very cloudy country, it's um, and that makes them so dependent on Russia for natural gas, everybody knows it. They've known it going in. When the Nord Stream pipeline is finished, it'll be even worse. So Germany has really uh, big incentives not to do anything to ruffle any feathers uh, with Putin. Uh, you know, France has taken a, a, a stronger stance. France <laughs> likes to go its own way on things, uh, but I think um, I don't think there's any. I don't think we can expect a unified response there. And then on the other side. Uh, Christine, as you said, what's Putin up to? You know, I'm no geopolitical mastermind, but I just think he's having fun. I think he's he's it's if he's a little bit like, you know, the the bad guy in the western who takes out his gun and shoots at some somebody's feet and says, Go on, dance. You know, if if John was here, he could probably uh, name the precise movie in which that scene is most iconic. But you know, look, I can make them pull all their their workers out of their embassy. Look, I can, you know, I can make everybody run around in a panic. And then I'm going in. No, I'm not. No, my, we're, our tanks are, are pulling back. Oh, but now we're going to do a big nuclear exercise. You know, it's, um, he's having fun, but he's also... I think there's some elements of practice here. You know, We know there's some cyber warfare going on. There, yesterday, there were reports of huge cell phone outages. They've done a lot of this in the past. So just experimenting, trying different approaches, seeing what happens, seeing how the country responds. And they might use all that knowledge in an all-out war soon, or... They might just bank it and just be, you know, know they're a little bit better at at manipulating other countries, destabilizing other countries, and and that's part of their toolkit. And
2: we sent, we have sent Kamala Harris to Germany. I just put that out there because it was the most baffling choice of the Biden administration in the midst of this crisis that I've ever heard. She has very little foreign policy experience. She's supposed to be solving the southern border. Like, what? It, why was she sent? I mean, what? It makes no sense to me. But maybe somebody else has a. Justification for why well, the convolies. same day they announced
0: uh, Harris would uh, be deployed to the Munich Security Conference, we also got word that for the first time in, I think, a decade, Russia would not be sending a delegation to the Munich Security Conference. So the stakes were relatively low there, piling onto her portfolio of uh, irresolvable crises the border, democracy, and now a uh, crisis in, in the East. I, I don't you know just, add, I, I just
1: sure. want to add a, a point about, about what Putin's up to here. Um, I agree with everything Jim said, but there's also. Um, he's been the strategic ambiguity that he's maintained so far has been masterly in itself um, because when no one knows exactly what you're going to do, you can build up behind the scenes um, or, or try to build it behind the scenes. The West is trying to expose a lot of it, but um, as long as there's, as long as you keep the idea in play that you, that you may not go in, um, you can also hold out for maybe some goodies might come your way. Um, the 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 incentives to to prevent an attack uh, grow stronger as 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 time goes on, as one seems as one seems to be more imminent. Um so you know, there was talk earlier this week that Ukraine was going to come out and sort of announce that they've abandoned hope for uh, joining NATO, uh, things like that. So, it, it suits him to hold on and, and, and see what comes his way.
0: Sure. And that wouldn't resolve the crisis, but because the crisis has nothing to do with NATO, Ukraine's ascension plan to NATO has been frozen since 2008. It's just a, uh, you know, a rationale they chat at trot out every so often when they want to justify this kind of saber rattling. And if you really look at what Putin's already gotten from this um, crisis, it's tangible, tangible advantages. He's the center of the universe. Um, he's managed to uh, shift the, conversation in the west away from the territories he's already invaded and occupied in ukraine to all the territories he might yet invade and occupy in ukraine essentially cementing those gains um so he's got some tangible object you know tangible uh achievements here and the we, we can't dismiss the kiev scenario so i think probably the likelihood is that the window begins to close for action after this weekend the belarus exercises conclude and likely that they have to move with their positions that they have now, these aggressive forward positions now rather than maintain that forever because it's difficult to maintain that forever. People get sick, equipment breaks down, what have you. And it's expensive, it's, it's very costly to maintain forward operating positions like this. So the Kiev scenario is exercises end, Russia does begin to pull back, maybe they leave a lot of heavy equipment be, uh, you know, behind and emplacements uh, and, and uh, you know uh, camps and what have you so they can do this again as they did in April, in April of 2021, Big 100,000 troop buildup on the border. Um, Joe Biden has a bilateral summit with Vladimir Putin, rewarding him for this kind of brinkmanship. And then Putin pulls back, but leaves all, everything behind so that you can just reassemble these positions pretty quickly down the line and have another crisis. What does that crisis look like? What do we, what do we, what do we think that looks like if, they, if there was sort of a de-escalation, a real a verifiable de-escalation over the weekend? know, do we just go back to the drawing board, we go back to the negotiating table, we have energy talks, and you know, we we don't follow through with threat of sanctions. And we've essentially destabilized Ukraine already because of all the economic investment we've taken out of like Putin has made tangible gains here. Does he face no costs as a result of this? I mean, mean, my 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 instinct is yes, that he faces no cost as a result of this. And we just have another similar crisis a couple of weeks down the road.
2: Did we mention the kindergarten bombing yet? I don't know if we discussed that. I think
0: we talked about that yesterday because it occurred yesterday. There have been a real significant uptick in the number of violations along the the quote line of contact, which is this um, border between the occupied Donetsk region where Russian proxies, Russian um, supported and controlled proxies are in control of that territory. And then there's Ukrainian forces on the other side. And there's always a couple of violations on a day-to-day basis, usually uh, uh, observed by the OSCE. OSCE is gone, so we have to rely on Ukrainian information. And according to Ukraine, uh, the number of violations have skyrocketed. And it's not like this is disputed information. There's videos, and people are on the ground, and they're saying, okay, well, this artillery is firing here, here, and here, and this person was wounded. Um, But the uptick in violations is very significant. Using weapons that are banned by the Minsk Minsk agreement, the Minsk Accords, which prohibit the use of the kind of very heavy weapons and artillery that are being fired along this border. So it is an increase in activity, um, but who knows you know, whether that is a prelude to invasion or not, but it is a destabilizing action. And then just the rhetoric out of the key players in this region should leave anybody pretty concerned, but it could just be yet another faint because like Abe says, the strategic ambiguity has been uh, very well played on the part of uh, Moscow and its allies. Jim? What do you think about our uh, our options in the event that we have a Kiev scenario where there's some sort of a pullback? What can we do to impose some sort of costs on Moscow in the event that they don't actually pull the trigger here? We've established for ourselves a threshold at which point they would trigger economic sanctions, diplomatic sanctions, and it's nothing short of a military action against
3: Ukraine. Is, did we draw the threshold too high? That's a good question. And in some ways, I think You know, as often happens in these situations, you look back and you say, did we fail to put the right counter incentives in place much earlier? You know, did we, um, by being too uh, kind of tiptoeing around the issue over the past uh, year or more, have we limited our options now? If they really go in, you know, there's a whole suite of sanctions on the table. Let's... uh, I think in some cases um, those could inflict real pain on Russia. The one I'm worried about is this idea of trying to pull Russia out of the global banking system, trying to, trying to lock them out of the system by which you know money is, uh, travels around the world. I fear that if we do that, there's another country that has a pretty big economy that might say, hey. We've got a banking system. We can set up a parallel alternative system that countries like Russia and Syria and maybe a lot of the countries that we're heavily invested in in Africa will want to be in and let the let America and the West have their banking system and will have ours. I think we want to be careful about you know we assume we run all these things and I think we want to be careful about setting up incentives to uh to shatter existing networks.
0: It's very interesting. <laughs> you know, I mean there's a lot of fears about the prospect of the United States losing its its role as being the the nation that hosts the world r- reserve currency. Um and there's, you know, concerns about the nature of crypto and and how that provides uh bad actors with Uh, tools that they can use to engage in monetary and economic activities that's a little sub rosa Um, and western governments are doing everything they can i suppose to create incentives to do that sort of thing Um, very blindly and as a as uh, jim says uh, perhaps uh, without regard for the consequences Um, but it's a that's a harder that's a bigger hole than than i think we give it credit for the notion that you can have two parallel financial systems is not unimaginable, but it's certainly difficult to conceive of. It's not something you can flip a switch and do tomorrow. These even even those engaged in the parallel system you're envisioning would nevertheless have to engage with the real system, the American-led system, because that that is we remain the world's uh, you know primary um,
3: reserve what? currency, and China holds all our debt for a reason. It's not because they love to hold on to our debt. Right. I'm specifically talking about this idea of blocking them out of the SWIFT system that, you know, if you ever get, you know, paid by a publication overseas or send money around the world, it travels through this SWIFT system. And it's a, you know, it's a protocol that it would take, it would be uh, challenging to to set up, uh, a, you know, a parallel system. But I I, I could easily see, um See that happening then yeah you th- there's this whole issue of um the role of u.s currency and the huge amount of u.s debt that china holds in a way that's a st- for, for our relationship with china that's a stabilizing factor you know that that is a something that they certainly don't want to put at risk at least in in the short term it would be pretty devastating to us if they wanted to pull all that money out but you know this is what makes putin so dangerous he starts moving uh, pieces around the chessboard in unpredictable ways and you know it could have simple things that we do to respond that m- might make sense in the short term could have these really deleterious long-term strategic effects and I'm not saying that's necessarily a reason not to do them, but it just shows you what a pickle we're in 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 figuring out what our uh, what our options are here.
2: Well, we don't even talk in the same language as Putin and certainly as China has been doing for a, a decade. If you if you listen to what they say, they're talking about a battle between the East and the West. I mean, a very straightforward, you know, there are a lot of historical connotations when that sort of language is used. And we are very short term uh, talking about all this stuff. Um, We've been doing that for far too long. They are playing the long game. China in particular has been playing the long game for most of my life. I mean, this this is something that I think we're very we're very good at sort of short term, responsive, nimble military action in cases where we have these, you know, diplomacy breaks down and we have to have, you know, skirmishes, but we're we're not great at articulating what our long game is. And there are groups, look, there's a wonderful little mini think tank in the Pentagon that does nothing but play out strategies, you know, of what the, the next war will be in a hundred years versus, you know, 10. But there's not a lot of communication of what that strategy is or what our, what, how Americans should think about it when, when the skirmish develops as it does where the antagonists are talking about a battle between East and West.
1: Yeah, that's a really well, good- even. I should really, even in thinking about the possibility of their establishing a parallel banking system, um, we're maybe not necessarily considering the, the, the long-term here because yes, it's a very heavy lift, but it doesn't have to happen all at once. Right. Um, it, it can, it it can be a gradual thing. It could be worked toward, um, without, without being achieved. Um, which is something, by the way, that could happen sort of regardless of of, of the outcome of, of, of Ukraine right now and, and what we choose to do and w- whether or not they are sanctioned from from SWIFT.
0: Yeah, I, I think Christine raised a really interesting point and a good one. And I want to put in actually a, a rare good word for the Biden administration because they, they are talking, at least recently, are talking about this in in terms that meet the historical gravity of the moment by talking about it as a great power conflict in the address that joe biden gave on tuesday or wednesday i forget it was like 3 p.m on a weekday in the east room it should have been a primetime address in, from the oval office the obama Obama-Biden people are allergic to using the Oval Office for some reason or another. They've worked themselves up into this weird psychology where you can't use the Oval Office for things that aren't just the gravest of circumstances, which lead them not using the Oval Office ever because they never want to define anything as a grave circumstance unless it's politically advantageous for them. Nevertheless, Joe Biden comes out there and talks about this, talks about the Ukraine crisis is all all but ancillary to what the actual crisis is, which is uh, a revanchist, great power that has irredentist designs and is acting on them and he invoked the cold war he invoked world war II. he talked about this in terms of near peer competition between states and he talked about the pain that the united states would suffer in the event that we'd have to execute this conflict in, in a you know a, a something sub military but nevertheless an active conflict with a competitor nation Uh, That would involve pain. I thought it was a a good speech, an important speech, and one that was dedicated to the preservation of geopolitical interests that we can't sacrifice on the continent, um, which is why it should have been an Oval Office address, because it was so profound in that sense. But at least we're beginning to talk about this in terms that Vladimir Putin would recognize, because he too thinks about this in terms of a great power showdown on the continent. And we're talking about, you know, kind of apocalyptic stuff. Uh, the the prospect of a conflict, a real conflict between the United States and Russia, two very nuclear nations, um, which leads us into our first advertiser of the day, Battle Box. Because Battle Box is your go-to monthly subscription for hand-picked outdoor survival and everyday carry gear. You might need it in the coming weeks, so you better order now. Getting your Battle Box gear for yourself not only takes time, but it can be incredibly expensive to get survival gear, which is why BattleBox brings you name brand, high quality products every month for half the price of what they cost on their own. Just pick the box that works for you and get uh, tested and vetted products that you can trust that are selected by an expert team of outdoor professionals from an aquapod emergency water kit to an atomic bear survival bivy delivered right to your doorstep every month. Find out why outdoor enthusiasts call Battlebox the best gear I never knew I wanted. Sign up. Receive. Survive. What are you waiting for? Don't miss another Battlebox mission. And from now until March 31st, get a free mystery Battlebox worth $115 or more with any new subscription at trybattlebox.com commentary. That's a free mystery box worth $115 or more right now at trybattlebox.com commentary. That's trybattlebox.com slash commentary. Uh, Jim, you noticed something in the news yesterday that we didn't actually t- touch on, uh, COVID related, moving on from apocalyptic nuclear conflict um, to the uh, sort of cooling conflict in the United States over uh, the receding COVID virus. And it's receding why? James, why do we well, think it's going away?
3: There's this phrase that we all talked about early in the pandemic, herd immunity, and then it kind of faded. You know, this notion that we're going to get to a level of infection and vaccination that basically means that the, the virus is no longer traveling through the population, so even people who aren't vaccinated are or haven't been affected are safe because they're not encountering anyone with the virus and the but wait 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 wait. we gotta i
0: gotta interrupt you because why did it go away
3: it went away because
0: the assumption was on the part of people who actually you know have taken vaccines and are familiar with vaccines and know how vaccines work set up wait a second i got covid how did i get this i don't get measles i don't get rubella how is this working like a vaccine if it's if it's if i'm getting diseases what i hear from yeah, people who and, are, you know, I, and and I can't I can't blame them for thinking that this vaccine isn't functioning like a vaccine that they're typically familiar with. But that's a mis, that's a, a misapprehension,
3: right? Right. Well, so, but in fact, there are vaccines where, that, like the flu vaccine, that don't necessarily prevent you from getting infected, but they do make the infection in good years they make the infection a lot more mild. So. There's been a backlash. Part of the backlash against vaccines is partly this idea that, well, if you can get it anyway, what's the point? Well, obviously, has been said a million times on this podcast. The point is, you don't die, and that seems like a pretty big advantage to me. But now we really are getting to that point where we can start talking about real-world herd immunity. Uh, there, the AP asked a, a researcher at the Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation to kind of run the numbers and. He came up with a figure of that 73% of the public is now immune to the Omicron variant. Now that's just Omicron um, there, and that's either through um, um, you know through infection, basically through the widespread infections. But given that uh, that we have, you know, we talk so much about the unvaccinated, but when you combine all the people who are vaccinated, boosted and uh and have prior immunity from uh from some infection whether it's omicron or one of the others we're probably up over nine percent there was a study in virginia that found that only seven percent of people were neither vaccinated nor infected so so to your point about you know to the about the vaccines not preventing people from getting infected? It kind of muddies the waters here because there's this tendency to, to say, "Oh, you know, more people are going to get Omicron, and that that's a big, uh, that's a big disaster." But in fact, a lot of those people who might get Omicron are going to get it having already had an infection or already being vaccinated. Therefore, they're not going to be an infe- uh, not going to be affected by it very much. So it's looking you know we've been kind of looking for this the, the you know the edge of the uh, of the the desert here for for quite a long time and we're definitely getting there obviously it's not just the way that we see the Omicron numbers subsiding so dramatically. I always like to watch the wastewater figures out of Boston and other places, because that's always a good leading indicator of the true level of virus circulating in the population. And those have, have uh, plunged down now to pre-Omicron surge levels in, in a lot of parts of the country. But remember that Omicron, for those who didn't get very sick, and a lot of people did, we, but for those who didn't also, served as a kind of, you know, super vaccine, uh, per- protecting people, not just from Omicron, but to a large measure from future, from serious illness, from future uh, iterations of the virus. So this is pretty good news. It's in the AP. So, you know, that shows that we're, we are seeing some even handed uh, treatment of these issues in the mainstream press, which is, you know, in many cases been all over the map in and kind of, you know, opting for the more panicked interpretations of, uh, of every bit of news. So, you know, we still have 2,000 people dying a day. So it doesn't mean there's not a problem or we shouldn't be concerned about that. But that, but certainly that's a lagging factor. It'll, it'll continue for a while. Uh, but I think we are. You know, as we get to the point where we have so few people who aren't protected in one way or another from severe infection, we're getting there.
1: But on the panicked interpretation, um, the article I read citing the 73 percent immune said that leaves roughly 80 million Americans vulnerable to the virus. So, Jim, you say, yeah, uh, you say we have a relatively small number who are still who are still vulnerable. The panic interpretation is you consider 80 80 million Americans still vulnerable to the deadly virus. This is this is this is this is a relatively small number. I mean, it's a, it is it is a large enough figure to take and run
3: with. So, yeah. So let me backpedal a little bit on my praise for the AP, because they didn't really tease this out. It's that the. the the information you need to reach the conclusion that that we are you know that we are reaching herd immunity is all in the story but when you say there's 80 million people who i mean i haven't gotten omicron yet i'll probably get it at some point it's not going to you know have much effect on me more, many more than it does on anybody else who's who's vaccinated and boosted but um but this it's too often, we're not seeing this distinction between the impact of the virus on the unvaccinated and on the vaccinated. So, and, and in some ways, the spread of Omicron through the vaccinated population is, in a weird way, for the, one, the, for the vaccinated people, kind of a good thing because it only enhances their immunity to, to, uh, to future waves of the virus. But you're right, the story didn't break it out as clearly as it might And, and, you know, that is that's been a hallmark of a lot of coverage through this whole pandemic.
2: Well, and I have to say, and I'm giving credit here to Noah and Abe and the absent John who talked about this, I think just yesterday, there's a very wildly cynical interpretation of what's going on in terms of the messaging about COVID, particularly from the Biden administration, which I think is going to be proved correct, I think you guys are going to be proved correct, that a lot of the Good news trickling out here and there is gonna is not gonna be celebrated until the State of the Union. You guys said this the other day. I think that's absolutely right. I think they're laying the groundwork to say, you know we just had news that you know they can they're gonna let more people in to listen to the State of the Union than they had originally said. So they're they're trying to kind of claw back some of these barriers. They're gonna get a huge pushback from the forever COVID folks, who are a very loud and um, not insignificant number of people on their side of the aisle, the ones who still wanna say the, the how dare you people, like uh, to Abe's point, the how dare you want all those people to die, the ones who I hear when when parents are discussing eliminating mask mandates in my school who say you want children to die. Die. Those people, they're they're still out there.
0: Well, OK, so I want Jim to weigh on weigh in on this because <clears throat> that was a very conspiratorial theory that we advanced yesterday, um, which is you know not outside the realm of possibility that was um, Joe Biden would use this. But that why is the CDC holding off on changing its masking guidance when Every indication is they're being left behind by the political moment, and no one's even listening to them. Uh, and they're and thus not ignoring the administration. This is an executive agency, so they're ignoring the Biden administration and moving ahead with their own policies. And the theory promulgated by John and others yesterday on this podcast was that uh, the president would say, "We're at a point now where you can demask, unmask yourself," and that would have been weird if you only allowed so many people into the into the State of the Union, which is itself weird because we're talking about an entirely separate branch of government, which is inviting another head of a branch of government to visit and therefore, an, and yet allowing the executive branch to dictate terms to the legislative branch about how they would be received. That's not how this is supposed to work. Anyway, so yesterday got word they're opening it up. All members of Congress can attend the State of the Union, but then we got some rules attached to it. You can attend the State of the Union, no you guests. can't bring guests, you have to be socially distanced. And you must wear a K-95 or N-95 mask while in attendance. So what's Joe Biden going to do if he was going to say, we, we're, we've reached the promised land, take off your masks. What are they going to say to all members of Congress? Take off your masks. Throw your masks away in a very theatrical event. That's, some, that's very Trumpian to the point where it would be amazing theater. But it's not going to happen. That's not going to happen. Um, if betw- unless between now and March 1st, we get uh, unmasking guidance from this administration there's not going to be unmasking guidance from the podium during the state of the union while everybody in attendance is masked right that's crazy well he's still afraid of getting it too let's
2: not forget there has been
0: reporting that the white house lives
2: in fear of of, of biden contracting COVID.
3: well <laughs> you know i kind of don't blame him i don't care how well vaccinated and boosted he the the guy's health looks a little frail i think to all of us there was just a somebody just did a survey yesterday i think that that i don't have it in front of me but something like two-thirds of americans think he ought to take some kind of cognitive test and you know so um so even a mild bout of covid for for him might not be not might not be the greatest thing but on this issue of the political role of uh of the health bureaucracy vene prasad and tablet had a good article a, a few days ago looking at how the CDC has performed through all this and coming to the same, same conclusion that we've all discussed and written about it in commentary is how depressing it is, what a bad job they've done. And he notes that the CDC is, yes, it's a scientific agency, but it's part of the executive branch. It has to interface with uh, political realities. And has, to, as he says, it has to balance public health and welfare with other priorities of the executive branch. And then he goes on to say, throughout this pandemic, the CDC has been a poor steward of that balance, and we've seen so many examples of this. But in many cases, the way the papers that they publish, the speed with which they announce them, the ones that they the ones that they focus on, whether they've published them or, or others, um, uh, uh, Rochelle Walensky has been notorious about cherry picking. Studies that make it sound like we need to keep school kids masked, even though in some cases those studies have been just really, you know, widely recognized as being extremely weak. Um, and so he says, uh, ultimately, these papers appear more as propaganda than as science. And you know, that could go for emphasizing a particular paper. Could also go for holding off on releasing information that might lend to a certain policy decision. So it, it is. It's been a surprise to me, and I think a lot of observers, how much our public health establishment is swayed by politics. First, it was swayed by kind of fear of Trump, uh, and so therefore, you know, if Trump said something, everybody else had to say the opposite or uh, or deny it. And now it is ho- trying to prop up an agenda that is uh, attractive to the. Um, you know, the eternal COVID wing of the Democratic Party and teachers unions in particular. And it has completely destroyed the mainstream trust in, in the science. And that is not a good thing. No matter how much you might say, oh, we need to be suspicious of experts and and we, you know, we, we can't leave everything in the hands of, of some small technocratic elite. When it comes to diseases and things like that, we do need experts. And when they destroy their own credibility and they destroy the credibility of other scientists who aren't even involved in this Uh, and they undermine our sense that you know um doctors and and epidemiologists know what they talk about that will have long-term dangerous effects down through the generations you know if you if you look at when we talk about vaccine denial for example you know for a long time people would look sympathetically at fear of the medical establishment in the black community for very understandable reasons. Some terrible things that happened, um, the Tuskegee study and other things uh, that gave black Americans legitimate reasons to be very suspicious of the health establishment. That stuff happened half a century ago and it still lingers on. It's still influencing people's healthcare decisions. What's happening today may also linger on. I'm not putting in the same category as the horrific Tuskegee experiments but I am saying that the trust destroyed is very very hard to recover and they're certainly not doing anything to help us kind of get back on track with the assumption that when the lead public health officials in our country tell us something we can be sure that it's true. Yeah, the I'm crazy concerned.
1: thing I just want to say, the, the crazy thing about that is about the fear of, of, of Trump and trying to counter his early message about um about the virus and and uh, and the word of experts is that they ended up sort of fulfilling his or at least sort of bolstering sympathy for his ability to poo-poo expertise, right? They 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 they, they eroded their own credibility in the effort to say don't listen to that. Listen to us.
0: Yeah, they still are. Which is why I'm, yeah. I'm still concerned or concerned, skeptical of the idea that the public health apparatus is participating in some sort of a big reveal strategy um, because your eyes you know, don't justify that. First of all, there is no big reveal strategy. Democrats are running in five different directions at once. And then you had people like Anthony Fauci went on television yesterday saying it's still too risky to allow children to unmask given what's out there presumably by which he means you know, transmission rates. Um, he didn't define those risks though. And I wonder if he could, and I don't think he can. And I don't think anybody's asking. It's all just sort of assumed because he's not talking to people who are skeptics. He's talking to true believers now. He's limited himself to a very self-selected, narrow audience of people who are disinclined to question anything the man says. Um, but this is a, still a very influential person within the public health apparatus. And if this is the thinking that dominates in this particular field, then it will eventually be left behind by political concerns, political imperatives. Um, but it's not going to happen tomorrow. It's not going to happen until it's already too late to salvage the credibility, Jim, that you say this this industry is 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 seeping out of this industry in, in a way that they can't cauterize.
1: There
2: was there was another there was an article in the Atlantic this week which suggested a a way forward. I mean, it's it's kind of an ethical escape hatch for all of the uh, public health folks who have really bungled the messaging here but it's one they might think about taking and that's to to start talking about covid and covid mitigation in the way you talk about smoking and smoking mitigation right so they were still allowed as public health people to to scold and scold and scold Americans who don't listen to them and take their advice and you know to have various mitigation measures including not allowing people to smoke in offices or on airplanes all the things that we've done for for the for the broader issue of health and safety for all but to acknowledge and accept that because their message isn't going to be 100% uh, uh, accepted by every single individual in this country, they just have to scold and let certain people are going to live and let live. And they're going to do things that might be harmful, like not get vaccinated or, or smoke.
0: That's really interesting. I mean, <clears throat> this is going to sound probably callous, but I don't care. Um, what, is, what is the vaccine passport regime, but uh, a, a, essentially the return of secondhand smoke? and the effort to get people who smoke out of your vicinity because they could harm your health. Um, We know that they don't, that these don't arrest transmission per se, at least to a substantial degree. Maybe the R-naught is a little bit lower for people who are vaccinated than not, but it's not zero. So the idea here is that you can sequester yourself with the fully vaccinated, which will preserve your health. Um, All evidence notwithstanding, and the notion, you know, that being a sort of a, a a fragile notion which suggests more to me that this is just an attempt to self-select the sample of the population you'll be exposed to not the viruses you'll be exposed to but the people you'll be exposed to
3: but also when you look at the example with smoking there's another i think somewhat worrisome wrinkle to that if we all remember back to those those idyllic pre-pandemic days uh, what was one of the CDC's big obsessions It was vaping and they they, they launched so many studies and uh, and promoted such uh, you know so many crackdowns on this new technology that we know is really helps people who are smokers get off tobacco
0: but we know That's now it. because the FDA yeah. has reluctantly, Uh, Acknowledged the evidence that suggests this is a smoking cessation device and a nicotine replacement therapy where the the FDA under Scott Gottlieb was very resistant to that notion up to and including efforts to rid the world of flavored tobacco flavored vape products because it was tobacco in another form, even though the the product involves no combustion and no tobacco.
3: Right, that you but oh, you know it's it's for the children. You know we're gonna we're gonna seduce the children into uh, into nicotine use, and then you know they'll move on to tobacco.
2: And they, and, by the way, the children are only vaping because it doesn't leave as much of a scent, and they can get away with like vaping weed in the high school bathroom. I, I you know, this is why they right. love vaping.
3: <laughs> but. But, you know, I talk about this idea of the precautionary paradox when you're so obsessed with a a kind of of safety that you actually make things more dangerous, making it less attractive to use a, a nicotine delivery system that doesn't fill your lungs with carcinogenic tar. Like they thought that was a good thing. And this is a real sign of where our public health establishment was going off the rails pursuing the wrong goals long before covid and you know uh, the, the libertarians at reason magazine have been all over this issue for many years and others but it is a very it paints a very worrisome picture about what their priorities are and their willingness to misrepresent the truth in order to protect us from ourselves
1: it's, it's funny that we're talking about the, the smoking parallel here, because I, I saw another article yesterday, I don't remember where, that proposed a kind of compromise going into the COVID future, sort of based on the way it once was with smoking, whereby you'd have sections, sort of masked sections, uh, people who, sections for people who fear COVID and sections for people who are going to go on with their, their lives. It's funny because I, I find the idea equally um, repellent and possible. I could really see that happening. And I say it's repellent because it, 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 it sort of you know, codifies the, the irrational split that we already have in this country that we need to get over. And it, and it builds up a, you know, this architecture around an irrational fear. It's it's well. it's a bad compromise.
2: And it's really, it's, it's a very good point because you're you're seeing this play out now, even in places that are allowing opt out of masking. So if you're talking about a social situation and the social pressure that can be brought to bear, particularly on children who are, you know, they sit next to their peers seven, eight hours a day. They are very uh, amenable to peer pressure, particularly at, at certain ages. And the idea that you can just say, well, it's optional, but if everyone in your school has these crazy COVID parents who are like, if they don't wear a mask, you can't go, you know, don't sit next to little Johnny, his parents must be anti. I mean, there, there's a social contagion aspect of this, which in, in certainly in my city and, and some other deep blue places has not disappeared at all.
0: So if you're you know, one of these people who's inclined to bubble wrap your children and sit in the neurotic section of the waiting room, you're going to miss out on a lot of great investment opportunities with Novo. Fortune favors the bold, the strong, the brave, not the people who sit in the neurotic section trying to get away from all the viruses around you. For your business to break out of anything holding you back, you need business checking as brave as you are. Introducing Novo Business Checking. Novo is a powerfully simple business checking product and unlike the traditional banking model, Novo has no minimum balances, no transaction limits, and no hidden fees. Instead of a one-size-fits-all approach, Novo is customized to your business to save you time and free up cash flow with seamless integrations to Stripe, Spotify, QuickBooks Online, and more. Sign up for your free business checking account right now at Novo.co slash commentary. Plus, Commentary Magazine listeners get access to over $5,000 in perks and discounts. Go to Novo.co slash commentary to sign up for free. Novo.co slash commentary. Novo Platform, Inc. is a fintech, not a bank. Banking services provided by Middlesex Federal Savings. F-A member F-D-I-C terms and conditions apply. Before we close out, James B. Meggs, I want to get to your fantastic column in the March issue of Commentary. It's titled Good NASA versus Bad NASA. I urge you to look it up. It's online at our website, and you'll be getting it in your mailbox soon if you haven't gotten it already. Uh, and it makes a very important point, one that I like to, to make on occasion, um, which is that, you know, essentially there are very two, two very hardened camps when it comes to the utility of NASA, the one side, which more aligns is not perfect overlap, but more aligns with the progressive left, which is that NASA is one of the finest achievements of the American experiment. And increasingly you hear from people like Bernie Sanders, these real hidebound leftists who believe that NASA should, should have a monopoly on space, that escape velocity should be the province of governments and governments alone. They're very frustrated by the advent of private space travel. And the other camp says that nasa doesn't do anything but constituent services it is essentially designed to funnel taxpayer money into a variety of different uh, special interest groups and it has failed at its singular mission getting people into low earth orbit and all it does now is robots and uh you know uh, greasing palms um and you sort of thread these two arguments into something that's much more comprehensive and much more nuanced
3: yeah i have this idea what i call good nasa versus bad nasa because you know NASA still does some really amazing and important work in space they've we've got the um the Mars Perseverance rover doing amazing geology on the surface of Mars right now. Uh, we just they just launched the James Webb Space Telescope wildly over budget and behind schedule, but nonetheless, this thing is going to be one of the biggest steps forward in the ability to image distant objects in the distant past in our universe. It, ever since you know Galileo pointed his telescope up at the sky in the 17th century for the first time so they do a lot of they still do a lot of good work but a lot of the public doesn't really know the story of bad NASA and you know you often hear people say well if we can put a man on the moon why can't we do x and usually those are people who are saying we need a big fat government program just like the Apollo project to do whatever my pet thing is. You know, just the other day, we heard the Biden administration announce their big cancer initiative. What do they call it? They called it the cancer moonshot. It remains our metaphor for, you know, any big ambitious program. And yet, if you look back at the Apollo program, it was a terrible model for for a, a... an effective ongoing government program. You know, getting to the moon was a very targeted goal. Uh, there's a, a space analyst and and pioneering blogger named Rand Sinberg, A lot of you know, you know, he he's written about this, saying this getting to the moon was the kind of problem that's very susceptible just throwing piles of money at it because it's a focused target. It's very different from something like curing cancer or solving poverty or. You know, or lowering carbon emissions, which are diffuse and, and involve a lot of interactions across entire economies. So the metaphor is wrong, but it's also wrong because if you look at NASA after the last mission, Apollo 17 in 1972, the agency almost immediately lost focus. They spent a huge amount of time and money and talent and lives ultimately on the space shuttle program, which had a lot of brilliant engineering, but really didn't work very well. They should have retired it quickly. Then they've, they've spent a couple of decades working on the, the, the replacement for the shuttle. They still haven't gotten this rocket in the air. The current version of it called SLS, the Space Launch System, with a capsule on top that's kind of you, sort of like a super duper version of the Apollo capsule it's supposed to have a test launch this year but they've been saying that since 2016 you know they that they, 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 you know any day now they actually are getting close i think we will see that thing fly this year but the rocket is so overdesigned so expensive uh and it'll probably cost something like 2 billion per mission which basically guarantees it'll almost never get flown it's just too expensive Meanwhile, Elon Musk and SpaceX are launching a Falcon 9 rocket pretty much every week these days for a fraction of the cost of what NASA can do it. So we're we're seeing a time when NASA has gotten bogged down in expensive projects. And as you say, a big element of that is constituent service. It's how many states can we... Bill, you know, can our many, many contractors build facilities in and hire workers in, and then those representatives and senators will make sure this program is untouchable. That's what kept the shuttle flying for a long time. That's what's kept this SLS program going, even when many people in NASA want to retire it and just just use private companies like SpaceX to do the 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 kind of the the basic Heavy work listing, of- literally yeah just the heavy lift. the basic work of getting uh, people and material up into orbit nasa should be designing you know deep space missions other things i i do think nasa has a big role in in human exploration of space they're going to also have competition from people like elon musk and jeff bezos and that'll be good for american space flight and innovation but it's time to stop looking at nasa as this model of this impeccably run, disciplined organization that shows you that bureaucracies can be lean and mean and effective. NASA's done a lot of great things. The moon missions were one of the greatest achievements in human history. But lean, mean, focused—you know—that uh, he- is is not has not been their story since Apollo. This is such an important point because I think
2: there's a whole cultural narrative about NASA that we we've seen enshrined in books and movies and and we hark back to it because in part I think we don't trust so much of our federal bureaucracy these days and the idea of looking at this kind of th- this this agency that did all these amazing things not all that long ago uh, as really just being like congressional pork in space like they, they, that's really disheartening it's kind of it turns you even more cynical I think so I understand the urge but I think you're absolutely absolutely. absolutely right that why not do what a lot of government agencies do and announce new public private partnerships. The the federal government's in bed with big tech, private big tech, all for all kinds of stuff, for cloud services, for for tons of things. It's weird that they don't want to do it with NASA, or at least if they are doing it, that's not what they're emphasizing as their goal.
0: Well, but they already do. I mean, uh, NASA contracts out um, most of its uh, launch services, achieving escape velocity, to what these private space exploration programs now, because again, it, it, it's a cost cutting measure. And Jim, I wanna push back a little bit, very little bit, because in that inc- very comprehensive and well thought out peroration you just delivered, you also said that I think NASA has a big role in manned space exploration. And I think that has become a piety, a, a throat clearing that you just sort of introduce into the conversation that is no longer apl- applicable. NASA has a big role to play in what you say in your in your article, Uh, keenly in conducting planetary science they do that very well much better than any private company i can't see blue origin landing a lander on a on a moving asteroid or sending a 10-year mission to to pluto or putting a putting a a probe into the atmosphere of titan or in 2027 i can't see elon musk landing a lander on the surface of europa it's just not in their remit there's no commercial value there anything that doesn't have commercial value should be the province of nasa Commercial value is found in getting people into into low Earth orbit and getting industry into low Earth orbit and even increasingly in getting people to Mars in a cost effective basis. Uh, That should increasingly become the the exclusive province of private enterprise supported by NASA, supported by public funding. Sure. But the the commercial incentives there will get us into uh, low Earth orbit and to the moon and to Mars much faster, if ever, than uh, the public sector apparently
3: can. Well, there's no question that the private sector is way, way ahead of NASA in terms of building the capacity to, to do that. Uh, Elon Musk ha- has been uh, is basically ready to start flying this gigantic starship design, the stainless steel, entirely reusable two-stage rocket. It's literally like something out of science fiction. And he is very explicit that this thing on its own has a capacity to get to uh, to get to Mars, bring a huge amount of payload. NASA might use this upper stage as a landing vehicle for the moon. So I think that that private industry will quite possibly beat NASA to some of these missions. But when you talk about planetary science, there is the science of rovers and space probes. But there's also the science of putting people in space, and some reasons to put people in space might have commercial value, and some won't. So, and I think I think it is defensible to have a NASA mission that uses private facilities to get our astronauts up there, but that where the astronauts are, you know, NASA employees, not billionaire uh, tourists or something. Or, or not necessarily you know, asteroid miners working for one of these companies that wants to mine the asteroids. I, I think there is a role for uh, exploration that is under the, the, the aegis of, of NASA. You know in 10 years I might feel differently about that. but and I, you know I'm a big free market guy and I think capitalism will drive a lot of great exploration of space. But I also I, I do like to think that there are, as you say, there are scientific missions that don't have commercial value, but they have scientific and, and human value. And I think I could see a subset of human spaceflight that also falls into that category.
2: Well, to say nothing of the defense uh, part of space, which is a whole other issue in terms of our national interest.
0: True. Absolutely. I, I, yes. Yeah, I, I mean... ignored the Pentagon there. The Pentagon and NASA, in my view, should be one in the same consideration when you really think about it.
3: I was I'm actually just reading a book about the early days of, of NASA and you know, the decision to split NASA out of the Pentagon and make it a civilian agency was done very consciously, partly to tell our, our potential you know, uh, other countries around the world that this is not the militar, militarization of space. But there's no question that once you have the ability to put people in space and do things, you have the ability to use space as a platform for, uh, for warfare. And you know China is all over that right now. Uh, so that to me, it might be a reason that you want a capacity to keep people in space that are there for missions that are defined by our national interests and not necessarily just by the interest of individual corporations. I was skeptical about the space force initially, but now I think you know we need to look at space as a potential terrain for future warfare, and we need to be present there if only to prevent those future wars. So I'm I'm as much of a skeptic of government spending as I am I think this is a legitimate goal I wish NASA was better able to get good results you know for the money it spends and um and I would you know be a lot more comfortable if that was the case James Meggs thank you for your time
0: audience if you want to read his piece you really should It's good NASA versus bad NASA. It's up on the commentary website right now, commentary.org. Thanks very much, everybody. Quick programming note for next week. Assuming none of us have been incinerated over the weekend, we will not be here on Monday. It's a holiday. We're not broadcasting, but we will be back on Tuesday. John is still out, but he will be back with us on Wednesday. So we look forward to seeing you then on Tuesday. In the meantime, have a great weekend. For Christine, Abe, James, and the absent John Horitz. I'm Noah Rothman. Keep the candle burning.